0: Amen. I want to talk to you a little bit about um, the mission of City Light Church. The mission of City Light Church. What is our mission? Uh, We we say it all the time. Uh, We exist to shine the light of Christ in our city through the transformed lives of his people. But there are some places that the mission is particularly grounded. You know, Matthew 5 being one, which is why you see you are the light of the world, that your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify God in heaven. But there are other places that the mission is grounded uh, in Scripture. This is one of those places, 1 Peter chapter 2, where the mission is grounded. All right. Um, I'll start by just asking a a question that may lead to uh, a a good visual of our cultural differences uh, anybody watch Surviving R. Kelly this week? Show of hands, anybody? All right, yeah, black people. Okay, that's what I thought. Um, anyway, um, anyway, so so for the people in the room that did not watch Surviving R. Kelly, Surviving R. Kelly is a documentary, a six-part documentary, riveting documentary, by the way, um, um, depressing documentary, I also might add, uh, where there's a uh, famous R&B singer, pretty much can, um, by some considered to be the king of R&B and has been, for the last 30 years or so, um, has shown himself to have some very twisted views in terms of sexuality and how he treats uh, women in particular. And this documentary is a 30-year 30, 30 culmination of all the rumors and all of the, you know, all of the payoffs and all of the, the different things where he got off uh, got off even though he was in jail, I mean um, on, on trial and he ended up getting away and not being convicted. This, this documentary kind of brings all of that to fruition. And what's interesting about the documentary, besides the fact that it's just depressing watching so many lives destroyed, is that there seems to be um, two wrestlings of identity or two, two different sides where identity is being wrestled with, right? There's the identity of R. Kelly, And his identity as being seen as the king of R&B and kind of being seen as this hyper-sexual, hyper-aggressive in sexuality character. He sings about sex a lot and all that sort of thing. It seems that this identity ends up shaping his behavior in profane and outright depraved ways, right? And then there's the identity of, of many of these young women that were taken advantage of. And what's interesting about the documentary is it really deals with the fact that he was dealing with a lot of young girls. I'm not going to even say women because they weren't women, they were girls. 14, 15, 16, 17. And so what's interesting about it is that during this time where identity is being framed and shaped for kids, that they were having their identity. Challenged and in some ways shaped in a way that would lead to them being abused sexually, emotionally, physically. And, 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 and what, is, what stood out to me as I watched this doc- documentary is how important identity is in our behavior. Identity, identity oftentimes shapes our behavior. And if we, if, we, if we frame our identity or if we secure our identity or if we anchor our identity in the wrong place, then typically what, what ultimately happens is the wrong behaviors pers- uh, come from that or flow from that. Does that make sense? And so City Light's mission is very deliberate. It, it, is, a, it is a mission that is centered in identity and actions flow out of the identity. We exist to shine the light of Christ in our city. That is an action. It's a multifaceted action. But the action in and of itself doesn't carry weight without the identity. We exist to shine the light of Christ in our city through who? The transformed lives of his people. Transform lives of his people. All of that is deliberate. Because I think it's not simply just doing stuff, but it's doing stuff out of a particular identity. All right? And so Peter, in this text that we're reading this morning, Peter seems to be compelled to to offer us even greater or stronger grounds for why we should view life this way. That identity, out of identity flows behavior. Peter starts in this text and he says, but you are a chosen race. But pay attention first to the contrasting word, but but you are a chosen race but but you are a chosen race in other words we know that this text or verses 9 through 12 that we're about to focus on is signifying a shift for Peter but you are so it is as is that is it's as if Peter is saying you are but you are before he says or after he says and they are does that make sense And we see that in verses 4 through 8. Look with me in verses 4 through 8, 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. One group, those who believe, those who hear the words of God, draws towards this living stone that others have rejected and they themselves find life in this living stone and they themselves become like this living stone taking on the qualities of this living stone and collectively being built up by this living stone. And this living stone, of course, is Jesus Christ for Peter. But the other group, upon that same rock, that same living stone, stumble. That rock has become an obstacle for this group, an obstruction for this group. They stumble, in other words, on God. They stumble or are obstructed by Christ, offended by Christ, offended by his work, offended by his word. In fact, Peter says that, they, that their stumbling is most reflected in their disobedience of his word, their rejection of his gospel, the good news, God's word has become an obstacle and an obstruction and an impediment to them. So in verses 9 through 10, Peter makes the separation between these groups. He addresses those who have embraced the living stone and have found life in the living stone. He says, they, in other words, those that have rejected him, they stumble. But you are. Does that make sense? But you are. And then he begins to unpack the identity that has been forged in the new in the or in the in the in the other group, in the but you group. So in all throughout this text, Peter urges them in their mission, he urges them in their assignment that God has given them, but he does so by rooting it in their identity, in what God has forged, this new identity. City Light's mission is not for everyone. Are you, are you listening? We exist to shine the light of Christ in our city through the transformed lives of his. People, the but you group. Does it make sense? City Light's mission is rooted in the identity of those people. So, those people being transformed are to go and shine the light of Christ. So, we believe again, identity precedes behavior, which is why we make so much of Christ in our preaching, and we make so much of what he's done in our preaching, and we make so much of his supernatural work that has transformed our lives. Because we believe that out of that, if we continue to just just point you to that, and we continue to just urge you in that, and we continue to just shine the light on that, we believe that that in in and of itself will begin to cause behavior to flow out of it. Does that make sense? So we focus on the behavior, but we focus on who you are and who he is and whose you are, because we believe that's where it flows knowing who you are helps make sense of what you are called to do and how you are called to behave. The more we understand about our person, the better we can understand our purpose. Does that make sense? And so Peter in this text, he he moves by establishing this identity before he instructs them in his mission. It's the same thing Paul does. When Paul, in his letters, he basically says, you've been accepted by Christ. And this is who you are now, so be who you are. He says that all, the way he writes is literally like that. This is who you are, so be who you are. In the Old Testament, God establishes Israel as his people, and then he says, you're my people, so here's the conduct you should be operating in as my people. In your own home, you talk to your kids sometimes, and you say, Crawfords, don't act like that, Right? In other words, you're shaping their identity. You're saying, no, 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 no. You, you're, not like, you're not like them folks down the street, right? They might do that, but the Crawfords, we don't do that. So we're giving them our identity, and we're basing behavior in, the, in that identity. And so Peter says, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for his own pos- possession.'" Now, one interesting thing about all of those descriptors, there's four that he uses, and every single one of them is flowing out of the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 5 and 6, he says, Now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possessions among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Listen, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Royal priesthood and a holy nation. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 20, he says, The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I form for myself that they might declare my praise. So Peter is taking Old Testament scripture that was once originally associated with Israel, the blood Israel, the natural Israel, the ethnic Israel, the nation of Israel, Right. And now he is taking those same scriptures and he's doing what? Applying it, not to the blood Israel alone, but he's applying it to the true Israel, the new Israel, which is the Israel that has been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, the full culmination of Israel, not just by blood, natural blood, but by the spiritual blood that we've inherited. He's saying all of us that are in Christ are that holy nation, all of us. That are in Christ are the people for his own possession. All of us are the royal priesthood. All of us are the chosen race. So what of these descriptors that we that we read? Chosen race. See, chosen ties our identity to grace. It means that what's been established has been established not through our own doing, not through our own blood, but through election. We were chosen. All Christians have been chosen by God, not by our own qualifications, not by our own righteousness, not by our own talents, not by our own power or will, but rather through God's sovereign and gracious choosing. But notice to what we were chosen to—chosen to be a part of a race, a particular race. And that word is, is is lineage. That word is family. That word. To signify to all of us that we were chosen, but we were not chosen as individuals. You track me. We were not chosen to live the Christian life as individuals. We were chosen to live it in the community of the saints. You weren't chosen. We were chosen. Does that make sense? Sure, you were chosen, but you were chosen as a, greater, as a part of a greater collective, not simply as an individual. Imagine what kind of unity simply we would see in the church if we just actually saw each other as the family that God sees us as. If we would just just rest in that identity alone, imagine what kind of unity that we would see in the church. God has literally snatched us out of other families, snatched us out of other lineages and placed us in this one lineage that says, this is your lineage. This is your family. This is your home. Are you tracking he says that we are a royal priesthood. He mentions, actually Peter mentions this in in, in, in in verse 5. He says you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices unto God. So he says, now, instead of there being one singular priest that we all must rely on and depend on in order to go in and offer sacrifices unto God that will be reasonable and acceptable, he says, now all of us now are part of this priesthood, and we all bring our sacrifices to him. And our sacrifices are sacrifices of our lives. And those sacrifices are for his delight, not for us to gain his satisfaction or gain or gain his approval of salvation. We have that. There was one sacrifice that was offered for that, and that was the sacrifice of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. But now our sacrifice is gone. We bring those spiritual sacrifices of our lives to bring the light to God. We are a royal priesthood. How would that change our behavior if we just thought through that and walked in that and understood that and embraced that? We are a people for his own possession. He says, he says, a people for his own possession that you may, well, well first of all, he says a holy nation, and, and obviously holy means separated, set aside. He talks about the fact that, yeah, you may be from different nations. You may come from many nations. Some of you may come from America. And then, of course, some of you may come from Texas, you know, because Texas thinks they're their own nation of itself, right? So, you know, some, some of you may come from Texas. But, no, but nevertheless, he says, no, it doesn't matter. I'm plucking you out of all of these different nations and setting you aside as one nation, mine. Does it make sense? Yeah. See, see, you see you have to understand what you have to understand as Christian, our patriotism does not come before our Christian fidelity and our Christian, our Christian allegiance. Do you understand that? See, I got more in, com- got more in common with, with, with the Asian brother and the African brother who knows Jesus Christ than I do with the American brother that doesn't. God, God has made me a part of another nation. He's literally snatched me out of this nation. It doesn't mean that I don't offer, offer uh, allegiance to this country and do, the, and, do, and do well for this country and look to see this country flourish, but it certainly doesn't mean that I do that at the cost of my Christian brothers who are elsewhere. Does that make sense? That's my first allegiance because I'm a part of a holy nation. But then he goes on and he moves and he says that you are a people for his own possession. A few of the apostles, sometimes they would open their letters in the New Testament and they would say, Paul or Titus, or not Paul, but I'm sorry, Titus, but Paul or James, a servant of Christ doulos is the greek term for the servant of christ it is an acknowledgement of who possesses them who they are owned by are you tracking that we are people who don't belong to ourselves that's your identity we belong to god and as you reflect on that the fact that you belong to god let me ask you a few questions who sets your agenda Who establishes your goals? Who dictates your behavior? Hopefully those answers are connected to this next answer. Who owns you? You track them. Because sometimes there's inconsistency, isn't it, in our hearts and in our lives. The person that owns us, or the God that owns us, doesn't set our agenda. The God that owns us doesn't dictate our behavior. But if we are servants of his, it means that we belong to him. So let me ask you another question. Who sets the agenda of a servant? Who sets the agenda of a servant? Who establishes the goals of a servant? Who dictates how a servant behaves? Who owns the servant? The master. Nothing disrupts our American senses. Than the absence or the, some, the the seemingly absence of our freedom. We don't like the fact that we aren't our, we don't like the fact that we aren't our own, right? We want to control that. We want to own that. I'm responsible for my own dreams, my own goals, my own agenda. I'm the captain of this ship. Jesus is my co-pilot. Right? Right? We drive this thing together, you know? So some of us can, some of us can, can concede a little bit and say he's my co-pilot, but, but, but a lot of us don't really like to even concede that. Being a people for his own possession means that we are a people that belong to him. We are a people that he owns. We are a people that was literally bought for his purposes. We are his, and because we are his, we look to do what he, that which he has called us to do. So then you see again identity doing what? Shaping purpose. Because we are his, we look to do that which he has called us to do. In the first letter to the Corinthian church that Paul writes, 1 Corinthians, He urges them to pursue God's standard of holiness in sexual practice, to leave the actual act of sex to to the boundaries and the confines of covenant marriage between one man and one woman. And this idea was very disruptive to the culture in Corinth. You have to understand, this is not Paul just falling in line with the culture in Corinth. Corinth was not with that type of understanding of sexuality at all. And so they probably heard that and probably bucked against it a little bit. Like, what do you mean? Why, why should I do that? Never never had to do that. We've always been taught that whatever feels good, do it. You know, I mean food for the belly, food is for the belly, so to speak. In other words, hey, whatever my appetite craves, I can pursue. And so it was very disruptive, but this is what Paul tells them. When he he gives them the instruction, he says, flee from sexual immorality. And then he says this, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And then he says this, you are not your own. For you were bought with the price of glorify God in your body. And so he says to them, flee from sexual immorality and do this because after all, it's not really that difficult. You should do it. Or flee from sexual immorality, after all, because this is just what the culture does. That, he doesn't make any of those arguments. He says, flee from sexual immorality and do this because you are not your own. You were bald. He never separates the difficult. I mean, he doesn't separate the difficulty of fleeing from it. Yeah, it's difficult. And he, does, he doesn't try to separate the culture from it. Yeah, the culture may be moving in a different stream. What he does is he says you don't belong to you. That's what you for identity shaping behavior. Pauls Brown's for telling them to govern themselves in their sexuality is is you don't belong to you. Now, in just a moment, we're going to come back to how Peter challenges us, but let's look at verse 10. It says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So that's the source of the identity. He gave some descriptors of the identity, but here's, here we see the source of it. God says, or, or rather Peter says to the church, we were not, once we were not a people. We had no true heritage. We had no true lineage. We, we, we weren't a true family, which is a very... Powerful statement in a sense because Peter is declaring that even the pride that one might take in their natural bloodlines, their ethnic backgrounds, their socioeconomic statuses, their sexual inclinations, their popularity, all of that is misplaced. That a lot of us find our identity in all those things and none of those things, Peter says, makes you a people. He says, "You, you weren't a people, but now you're God's people. None of that mattered, according to Peter, for this simple reason: you were not known by God, so yeah, sure you may have been african American or sure you may have been may have been Caucasian or yeah, sure you may have been may have been um uh, latino and you, and you may and you may have had great pride and great respect and great dignity in that in that particular identity and that 's beautiful and that 's wonderful, but make no mistake about it. you are not you are not truly, truly, in the deepest sense of a people, you are not truly a people until you are known by God as a people. He says you weren't a people, but now you are God's people. Paul says this in Philippians in, in a certain way. He says this. He says I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel, I was of the tribe of Benjamin, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrew, Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee, as to, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Listen, but whatever I had, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing work of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, yeah, I have a lot of clout, physical in this life clout, natural clout. Hebrew of the Hebrews, according to the law blameless, Pharisee, check my socioeconomic status, check my ethnic uh, ethnic status, check all of my statuses. But you know what Paul says in answer to that? It does not matter. All of that I count as lost for this one thing, to know him and to be known by him. I was not a people until I was his people. Do you understand? Tasha Cobb sings a song with the simple lyric, You Know My Name. And because of that, everything else will be all right. We are God's people, and because of all of that, the descriptors fit chosen race, royal priesthood. People of his own possession, a holy nation. Why? Because we're gods. But also because we were once a people without mercy and now we've been given mercy. Because we were enemies of God, that's why we needed mercy. We transgressed his law, we defamed his name, we disobeyed his commandment in all sorts of ways. We valued our will above his own, and so we, all of us, needed mercy. But also, we were insufficient. Not only did we not uphold his righteous standard, but we couldn't, even if we had the desire to uphold it. We, in and of ourselves, on our best days, are sinners at best. We are insufficient, and so thus we needed mercy. We don't become a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession, a holy nation without mercy. And so our identity is forged in mercy, which means that our conduct should be forged in mercy. Christians should be the most merciful people on the face of the earth. It's only a people who are blind to mercy or blind to their receipt of mercy that carry the ability to withhold it. Are you tracking that? We were not recipients of mercy, but we received mercy to be called royal priesthood, chosen nation, people for his own possession. And so that's what shapes and forges our identity and constructs our identity as transformed people, his transformed people. And because of that, we go and shine his light. And that's what Peter gives us in the last verse, last two verses. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your convict among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He says, Because you are who you are, because you are chosen by God, because you've been engrafted into this new family, this new race, Because you are a a royal priesthood that's called to offer spiritual sacrifices to God for his delight and for his pleasure. And because you are a holy nation. says, even though you're in this world, because you're all those things, you're not of this world. Peter calls you sojourner. In other words, you're a traveler through this world. He calls you an exile. You're an outsider to this world. Yes, you're in it, but you're not of it. You are not a part of it. You are an alien. You are an outsider. In the words of Lecrae, you are an anomaly. That is the identity that you must walk in and and the identity that must shape your behavior, right? That's where behavior comes in. Now that I understand my identity, this is how I should walk. Why? Because this is who I am. And so he says, because this is who you are, Proclaim his excellence, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light, into his marvelous light. You were purchased to make his name famous amongst those who do not know him. You were purchased to make his name great amongst those who have not seen him. You were purchased to to, to tell of his worth to those who have either ignored it or those who have yet to hear it. You were purchased for that. To proclaim you were bought to proclaim his excellencies to the world. You were bought to proclaim the gospel because that is the highest of his excellencies. The Christ came to die and pay the penalty for sinners. You were purchased to tell the world about In what way can your life be lived, as you think about that this morning, in what way can your life be lived as a fixture of praise to the one who called you out and bought you with his own blood? How can I live my life day to day to reflect praise for that? As you leave this place and go back to your loved ones and your coworkers and your friends and the strangers that you engage on a daily How can you live in order to ensure that you proclaim his excellencies and leave no doubt who you belong to? He says that you should abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Why should you abstain from the passions of the flesh? Why should you reject sexual immorality? Why should you reject loose lips and saying ugly things to people? Why should you reject lustful acts? Why should you reject these things? Because of the one who bought you. Because you are a chosen race. You are a holy nation. You are a royal priesthood. You have been set aside. You are a sojourner. You are not a part. You are not myth to be engulfed in the passions of this world, you're passing through this world. You are not meant to be engulfed in the lust of this world. You are outside of it. And so because that is your identity, he tells you to fight. He doesn't tell you it's going to be easy, right? He says, abstain from that which is waging war against you. So he says, it's going to be hard, but fight. Tracking with that. And then lastly, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter's reference to the Gentiles simply means unbelievers who are far from God. We live in a time where Christianity is growing more and more disdained by the culture. Some of the reasons are what we would expect, desire for freedom, doubt, unbelief, but other reasons are because of the conduct of the saints is simply not honorable sometimes. We are known more for what we hate than what we love. And we are known far more uh, to be connected to political parties than a risen savior. We are known far more to have a tone that is condescending and a posture that's condemning. The church isn't seen as a refuge. The church is seen as a prison. And because our conduct is not honorable amongst the Gentiles, we leave, we leave openings where we should be closing those gaps, right? And paving the way for the gospel to be proclaimed. We leave reasons for people to say, ah yeah, but still. Instead of closing those gaps. And saying to themselves at the end of the day, man, those people really, 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 really love people. Those people, man, they must love Jesus because they love people. But I'm just not ready to give that up yet. I'm just not ready to give up freedom of freedom from, um, from my own will. But it's, but it's not, hey, listen, man, those people, I got respect for them. They're, 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 loving, they're loving people well. They're serving people well. They're looking out for those that have little. Are you tracking with that? Making your behavior honorable amongst the unbelievers, what Peter is speaking to. That's the kind of conduct that he's pointing towards. When you look past verse 12, you see it. You, he, tells, he tells you how to do that in some ways in his particular day and time, in his context, the things that were valuable to them. He tells, he tells them, don't dishonor authority. Respect authority. Because when you dishonor authority, you leave room. Right? You leave room for the Gentiles to say, or for the unbeliever to say, those folks, man, nah. They talk about, they talk a big game, but they're not really about it. When you don't pursue a loving and respectful marriage, that's what Peter highlights. You leave room. He says, when you don't treat your employer with this, when you treat your employer with disdain and disrespect, you leave room. All of those things he highlights after he talks about making your conduct honorable amongst the Gentiles. So all of this in Peter's mind is a support to our witness towards the unbeliever. But why? Because you're a chosen race, because you're a royal priesthood, because you were bought, and because you're a holy nation. That's why. Why? So as we leave and as we think about shining the light of Christ in our city, as we think about living in ways that will, that will testify to the world that our God is good and that, will, and that those good works will lead to people giving praise and honor and glory to God, we can't, we can't start with the actions. We got to stop first and pause and ask ourselves, who are we and whose are we? And as we reflect on that, and let the Spirit of God move in our hearts on that truth, in that truth, then I'm convinced that the Spirit of God will also use that to let the behaviors flow so that we might live in this world that God has called us to live as sojourners and as exiles, aliens and outsiders. Amen.